RLC founder Dave Evans spends time with partners, clients, and friends in the USA talking about all things business. If you are an inspiring business owner, an entrepreneur, a CEO, or a coach who wants real advice about what to do in business today and wants to hear frank conversations, then this is the show for you. Real life consultations, challenges, and ideas from all around the world. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consultivation. We are back on RLC Consultivations. We've had a couple of apologies from some of our regulars due to the USA stimulus package going out live with many lenders this week and some of our usual friends having to prioritize supporting businesses to get the money they qualify for from government funding and stimulus in the USA. So best of luck to all of those involved in that process. And I do believe, uh, nothing to be alarmed about, George Powers is at the doctor's. So let's wish him good health too. Back by popular demand is our ever-ready two friends, Kevin uh, Turnbull from RLC LA, president of RLC Los Angeles, probably the grandest name we've got in our toolkit, and also VP of our consult training program and movement in the US. And back again is Eric Swick, Mr. Reliable himself, Swick Business Strategies, the man who's got a plan. Eric and Kevin, welcome back with us on Consultivations once again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So we had quite a heavy session last week, didn't we, about the leadership rules and the seven RLC daily leadership principles that you can apply in any business. And we got up to, didn't we, number six, which was about um, recruiting, retaining, rewarding, and developing your people. First things first, chaps, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, how important is it to get this one right? Oh, I mean, it's so important to any organization because, you know, I've been a leader of an organization and you're so dependent on your team to really execute your plan or your goals or your vision. And so having the right people on the bus is so critical. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Um, I come across companies all the time whose recruitment is frankly desperate. Um, they, they, they recruit the wrong way. They're not looking for the right people. Um, they're impressed by kind of CVs instead of, you know, fit to the team and the like. Um, and in addition to that, I would say that a lot of people don't know how to onboard new employees. Um, they focus on kind of pay and rations um, instead of culture and things like that. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I often, talk to clients about, you know, it's not so much when you're hiring someone what they know as opposed to who they are. Because if you don't get someone that really fits in with your culture and your organization, I don't care what they know, um, it's gonna be a disruption typically. And they're not gonna last very long. So to me, I like to see people hire for who people are because you can't change who they are but you definitely can change and, and teach them what they need to know and, and build skill sets and things like that. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. I, I used to work for Ford a long time ago um, and uh, they had, they brought in a new policy and decided to bring in um, MBAs, you know, as, as kind of, you know, at a fairly, you know, decent level of seniority. Uh, and I'm talking about the 1980s here. So MBAs yeah. weren't, weren't exactly thick on the ground, but, they 
you know, they, you got the feeling that the recruitment was all about um, the person's education, not whether they would fit in with the team. And, you know, I'd, I'd been at Ford for a few years by that time as a graduate trainee and worked up, you know, come up through the ranks, climbed the slippery pole and all that good stuff. Yeah. These companies came in with no understanding of the culture and an expectation that they would just leap ahead of everyone else. And of course, that pissed everyone else off, excuse my French. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it was because people didn't define what they were looking for and did a shocking job of onboarding them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really important point though, isn't it, onboarding? Because it's the bit where, it's like sales, you sold a dream and then suddenly they join, don't they? And does it match up to what was sold in the process? Yeah, that's right. Um, and yeah. in fact, I, 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 this came up with a client no more than four months ago, where, you know, after um, after going through some various processes, they, uh, they went from no, a non-onboarding strategy to quite yeah. a comprehensive one. Um, you know, training, paying rations, what do they need to do? You know, how, does, how do we work here? What the team is? But there was one glaring omission, and that is, what do, who's going to tell them what the company believes in? Yeah. You know, who we are, what is our why as a company, and, and, and why do you fit in with the team? And ideally, this should be some senior executive or in a small business, usually the CEO, to sit down and, and tell that new recruit, this is what we believe in, this is who you've joined, you're a perfect fit, you're going to do really well. And getting those cultural things in place are essential in any on, uh, successful onboarding program to me. Yeah. How, how many jobs have you had though, Kevin, right? Where you've experienced somebody owning that process and getting it absolutely right. I can only recall one in my entire career where somebody had really thought about it and for three whole months, nothing was more important than getting the induction correct. Not even skill, not even are you competent yet, just you absolutely get this, who we are, what we're about, and the difference you can add and where. Only once for me. What about you, Kevin and Eric? I, I would say that my very first job out of college was like that, um, where they did do that, but that was the exception to the rule, and that was many years ago. But it was more of a large corporation that still had that family feel because it had been a large corporation that was a family-owned business for many, many generations. Um, but you're right, it's not typical. It's not typical. No, it's not at all. Funnily, funnily enough, Eric, the, the first company I joined, they had a fairly comprehensive induction program, and that was appreciated, um, even though it didn't really match reality. But let's skip over that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I've done a lot of jobs and, you know, done, worked for large corporations and small businesses and done startups and... Uh, and IPOs and all of that sort of stuff. And I, and I think it's a truism that the more senior become, the more you just chucked in to the deep end of the swimming pool. Um, and, you know, I've done some pretty senior jobs and it's a kind of, yeah, welcome on board. Here's your, here's your company car and, uh, and there's your office and get on with it. Yeah. Um, no induction at all. You know, you might have a brief chat with the CEO and that was about it. Yeah, see, my first experience was I was in a management training program, so they invested in me for an entire year to wow. develop me and have me learn and 
understand all the workings of the business. So that was a unique situation, I think. And you don't see those kinds of situations now as you did back in the, I won't tell you what century that was. Oh, no, Eric, it was just the other day. Uh, anyway, the, the interesting thing is there's a consequence to rule number six that's quite severe. Mm-hmm. And that is what most people forget in a cultural transformation. So when you, a, a cultural transformation sounds far too strategic and intelligent, right? What it is is where you're taking a culture from one place and you're either adapting it, changing it, or evolving it into another place, right? Ideally better, would that be fair, right? Yeah. What, there's two things that happen in that process. People will eventually, I think it's this hand, prefer the old way more than the new initially in that first phase. And it's normal. So they're going to jostle, they're going to attempt to switch it back, create justifications. Uh, I, I, I think back to moments when I was much younger and you you see people, myself included, uh, making a, a New Year's resolution, which is a silly idea uh, initially. And they, they make that decision and then they justify somebody else's behavior to switch back. Oh, it's because of you, Kevin, I'm now breaking all my resolutions. And people do the same with culture. And in that moment, when you switch back or you you seldom hold your nerve enough, the wrong people leave your organization. Yeah. The people who are there to build a better version, usually, fairly quickly, Kevin, in my experience, exit. I think I think I think I think that's right. What, I, I worked for a big company um, uh, earlier in my career, and we had a terrible turnover of graduate trainees, um, and and so we we got together a group of managers, including myself, to work at, in, in a kind of pilot uh, um, investigative sort of a role, and we found out basically that we were recruiting people like us. Um, so this was a sales and marketing group. So if, if you know anything about Myers Briggs, you know we were all on the we were all on the extrovert side, extrovert you know, BSs basically, and that's who we were recruiting. And um, in that sort of environment, loads of people left because it was too competitive, and it didn't reflect that even in a sales and marketing group, we needed people with better analytical skills, not just not just soft people skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so we needed introverts to think more deeply about our strategy and where we were going. Um, and it seems obvious saying that now, but for us at the time, it was a revelation. It was. I can, I can imagine. Just want to interrupt you, Kevin. Doug Holstead is shout, giving us a big shout out. We're looking forward to Doug being back with us. Debbie's making a guest appearance as she comes to collect her lights. Um, which you need, of course, living in the Glen in Scotland where there are none other than the ones in where you live. But Doug's talking about we're knocking out the park. Thank you for the soul food, Doug. We really appreciate that. Um, Kevin, going back to your Belbin thing for a second, right, is is that I remember I've only ever personally been a, a delegate in what I would consider to be a really great team building exercise once. And that was Belbin team dynamics all those years ago. And I found it to be like the Myers-Briggs initially, very reliable, um, where people were discovering what type of team player they were through through the Belbing theory. And it was pretty accurate. It was a couple that was slightly scruffy for most people. But what, what I found that was stretching was not only did you get a better understanding, but the assessors then made you do the things that you were crap at. 
And part of my job was to do this event where you've probably heard of it, Kevin, right? Where you've got an oar, a boat, you've got a team, a rope, one pulley, and a second oar to sit on. You're not allowed to touch the boat. You've got to get everybody across this lake or like wide river, across the other side and back again in one piece without getting wet. Well, of course, when they gave that to me and said, your first task is to assess all of these pieces and work out how to link them together, I generally sat there going, huh. Anyway, fast forward, everybody was submerged in water. We sunk the opposition, the other team, we took them out. Um, and it became a wrestle rather than a team building exercise. And it turns out in the end, because it was two of you at the same time, North and South being told to do the same thing. The actual metaphor was, if you'd all put your tools together as two teams, you'd have had two of everything. It'd have been a giant circle, but no, it didn't work like that. Yeah. So, but I, I, it's something about, isn't there, being in a frightening, uncomfortable zone. But for me, I have to tell you, I found that terrifying. So what we're talking about here is real team building real recruiting the right people, retaining them and rewarding them. And, and please, if you're leading a company today, and we'll come straight back to Eric and, and Kevin in a second, stop letting the right people leave first. What a waste of their time, yours and people's life time to do that to them in the first place. Sometimes it can't be helped, I'm sure. So shall we have a look at number, number seven? Uh, so number seven is execute the plan. What do you initially observe about this rule? What does it not say first? And this is a bit like catchphrase, the TV show. What does it not say? Say what you see, Kevin. Um, uh, develop, does it say develop the plan? No, it doesn't. Yeah. There's an assumption. There's a plan. Now, Sometimes that plan might have to change. If, from a, if you think about a startup that takes off and two years in, um, how many times have you seen that, Katie and Eric, where somebody starts out and it brilliantly and then all of a sudden all the things they've not built yet start falling down? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. All the things they've not built yet starts falling down. <laughs> That's right. It's a polite way of saying it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know. But I, what do you think is the best way to build a plan, chaps? Well, I'm biased, but I, I think using a framework that we use is the best way to build a plan where you look at, you know, where are you at today and where do you want to be tomorrow? And there's going to be always a gap and it's figuring out, okay, how do I bridge that gap? What do I need to do to make that happen? Um, that's where your plan comes out of that exercise. Absolutely. And, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I think our framework process is pretty brilliant and it's it's quite thorough, actually. Um, yet, why is there a problem with executing, do you think? Well, I think in the, ma in the main, um, the companies that I come across, their plans are pretty sketchy. Um, you know, it's it's usually a kind of, well, we'll do what we did last year. It's a It's a kind of operationally led um, and numbers led, you know, are we doing okay in the numbers or the plan must be working even when they haven't got a plan. Um, and uh, and and to 
to develop the plan it takes a kind of an executive who is looking up you're looking into the future um, looking at possible roadblocks in the way you know which could be technology and ai and all sorts of the pandemics could be all sorts of things and anticipating what could be out there and how to get around it in advance that's when you're developing a plan um, because trying to execute a plan that you don't have it's it's pretty difficult yeah. but what i find even when they have developed a plan or what they think is a plan it's the execution side that always falls short and i i find from my experiences you know it's being held accountable having someone that holds you accountable to delivering what you said you're going to do i've seen so many people in fact i have one client i'm working with right now who went through kind of a visionary day workshop and you know they've got all these great ideas on what they want to do for the business but there's no no one holding the leader accountable to making sure that they implement it and there's no details to the plan you know a lot of times i see high level thoughts yes we want to grow revenue by this percentage yes we want to have this many more customers or clients but there's no thought process and no accountability on well how do we get there you know what are the steps because everything takes steps multiple steps to accomplish something and you know as kevin was talking about it's developing that plan and having the details of it but i often say it's really you know what's going to motivate someone to really make it happen 100% because what we mustn't make accountability is we mustn't make accountability a myth right i was talking to um collect bell earlier today and we were talking about a very simple idea that one of the secrets to really great accountability is that it's an implied consent where sometimes as a coach you don't even have to ask it because you know we've agreed it so you'll often show up and say here's where I'm at right and then you can retain that coaching collaboration through accountability as opposed to just the really bland kevin you said did you and sometimes it's got to get to that but i think it's using accountability as an implied consent is a really nice way making it relationship centered so when you're executing a plan we all know what the boundaries and the rules are which make the conversation an awful lot easier now can we do something quite challenging uh, so i'm going to go to uh, our website where we did publish this blog last week because i absolutely want to cover um, a very specific thing and that is how these seven leadership rules can be adapted to reflect real time well-being so and i think if people are watching this they'll make quite a bit of sense of the actual blog itself so if you want to know where that blog site is we're displaying it right now on the live feed and it's it's uh, www.rlc-global.com uh, go to blogs and we're talking about the one that's seven ways to be an intentional leader and what we've done here kevin and eric is we're looking at each of these rules right and we're saying um how do you link them to well-being and i'll go through the first one kevin and uh, eric i'd like you to pick one right because we haven't got time to do all seven of these but uh, you know for me modeling the behavior you want from others first i'm going to start there because it's a huge one for me a lot along with doing what it is you say you're going to do and all sorts of other things right so we talk about the link first so the link is if you're only modeling a strength mindset 
and you're forgetting to show vulnerability, empathy, weakness, compassion, you're most likely going to find nobody is going to mirror that. No one is going to follow that lead. Would you agree, Japs? Absolutely. So yeah. uh, I or what I would say is they may follow, but it's not really what you want them to be following, right? Totally. Yeah. So, so there's a chance here to really think about how do you set the right model in Eric, isn't it? You know, and at the same time, the tip we're providing is show candor, show encouragement, show vulnerability. Not, not, it's not vulnerability. I, I, I always think that sometimes you can classically think vulnerability is, is your ability to be completely comfortable, crying your eyes out, sobbing, you know, uh, and it's none of those things. It's, it's as a communication tool, are you letting people know it's okay to be anxious at the moment? And to yeah. encourage- I, I mean, I think as a leader, I think, I think as a leader, it's important to say, hey, I don't have all the answers, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I want to collaborate with everyone to get the best solution. Uh, I think that's showing some vulnerability because as a leader, you know, you don't always have to have all the answers. 100%. Is, is there one that stands out to you, uh, Kevin, next? Uh, so we've got have a story, enable your people to act, remove the obstacles. Is the one you want to pick as a link and a tip that maybe stands out to you, KT? I, th I think have a story to me um, uh, gets to the heart of this whole discussion about about executive wellness. Yeah. Um, have a story is kind of centered around an RLC concept of fuel fuel tanks and fuel gauges. Um, yeah. We each we each have a spiritual, emotional, and physical fuel tank that it's important to monitor for yourself, and it's important to monitor the people that you work with. For example. I've got, a, I've got a client, CEO of a business, owned by private equity. It's been on the block for a while, so that the, the, the owners are trying to sell it. And the CEO, his physical and emotional fuel gauges are reading close to zero. Um, and that's, dra that's dragging down the spiritual side of him. And I see him at the, because I, I talk to him a couple of times a month, and I see him at the end of our conversation, well, at the beginning of the conversation, because I do try and motivate him, um, but when I when I see him, he looks tired. He's you know his eyes are sunken, um, and I and I basically I, I tell him that look, you've got to look after your fuel gauges, um, and and you're not getting any help from your board, who are the money people, who basically couldn't care. Um, but but he cares about himself, and he does care about his employees deeply. He's a very good executive, um, but I have to keep dragging him back into this story of look. You are you're just like you're just a human being. You're suffering in a in a in a in a locked up pandemic-led environment, and you've got a very difficult assignment of helping this business to be sold. And so yeah. there's a big unknown in front of you. So his fuel gauges are, you know, are, are need to be I, I look I look at I look at them for him and tell him that, you know, he's 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 getting to critical critical levels in some in some in some at some time. Yeah. And you can't give what you want, can you? No, exactly right. Once, when you're running on empty, um, firstly, as you say, Dave, you've got nothing much extra to give, but also people around you recognize that. Absolutely. They can see that you're a low ebb and therefore your leadership dynamic 
is being, you know, quite severely being uh, brought back down. Does that does that make sense, Eric? Oh, absolutely. I agree with you a thousand percent. You uh, you gave me a, a, a quote there, uh, Eric and Kevin. Running on empty means the next station is stop. Yeah. And that's exactly it. You lose all your momentum, won't you? Eric, which one of these stands out to you at the moment? So as you look at the link to well-being. It's funny, I don't mean, I don't mean to go in order here, but the one that really hits me is enable your people to act. Because if, if you don't, I feel that there's a lot of anxiety in the organization. And yeah. they, they hold back and they're not sure, you know, can I do this? Am I, is it okay? What's the repercussions of my actions if I do this? If they're always having to look over their shoulder, they're not going to be successful. They're not going to portray the image that you really want them to your customers or your clients or, yeah. So I think, you know, enabling your people to act is so important. And I think that ties into the story, right? Because if everyone understands what your story is and what you're all about, um, that's the beginning of it, right? That they understand that they're part of the story. And then it's a matter of just giving them permission. Um, giving them permission to take risk, permission to try new things. I think it's so important. And if you if you look at what people want in their jobs, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I hear they want. They want that ability to act. And, uh, you know, I, I think most people, when they do fail, it wasn't on a malicious basis anyway. It was because they thought it was the right thing and they wanted, they wanted to help the business. And so they always have good intent and uh, you have to believe in that. And I think, I think there's loads of great leaders in business today and organizations in all shapes and sizes who do this instinctively, right? Mm -hmm. But they might be doing it as a lone, lone ranger or a lone wolf or, you know, in, in silo, but, and therefore they stand out as a good thing or sometimes as a pest, right? Because I, I always go back to many years, many, many years ago, wanting a dashboard uh, for KPIs. Uh, wow, a long time ago. When, when it was first a capability, Kevin, right? In large organizations, when they, start, they were starting to provide this data. And um, I remember discovering something that if, if you're part of a group team that, and you want something, there's always a bigger business question to ask, which is, well, if it's gonna improve what I'm doing, could it improve what everybody's doing? And therefore, suddenly, Kev, a normal project overnight could become a large project, couldn't it, if it's going to make a massive difference. And what often people do, when, when they, you see naturally people doing this in Able Build Act, what often happens is they do it in this microcosm, whereas if it's a large organization, it's a natural place to teach people to say, listen, if you come across something that's going to help us all act better, let's see if it's scalable, and let's do an even better job that permanently makes the change. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. What I feel is really important is that that has to be believed throughout the organization. Yeah. Because yeah. what I find is a lot of times the upper management believes that the it's the middle management that sometimes gets in the way because um, they're threatened by their people. Now, I have to just, I have to agree with you, right? Uh, yeah. I have to just pull up another LinkedIn comment. Somebody called Dave Evans said, go, 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 Team RLC. That's clever, isn't it? <laughs> I, managed, I managed to do that at the same time. But I, I think you're right. It's got to be a belief that's shared, Eric. 
in yeah. as, part of, as part of the process. I think it's super important. Um, Ken Blanchard's got a new book out called the Heart, of the Le- Heart of the Leader, and he spends a large chunk of time about talking about leadership rule number five, which is encouraging the heart of the organization. But I think I think this year that's not going to become a um, not the book that that principle is not going to suddenly become critical. It is only going to become a necessity because people are having the world over a tough time. Yeah. So we've got to anticipate the effect of that on people. I think. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think a lot of it's about sharing and uh, and openness. Um, uh, you know, sharing the the strategy, sharing the culture. A long time ago, when I did an MBA, I wrote that there was a thing in the early '90s um, called executive information systems. So um, it was an IT-led data thing to give yeah. executives kind of unique information about how their organization was developing. Um, and and I, I did quite a lot of research on it, original research on it. I had the thing sponsored by an EIS company. But my conclusion was that this was all rubbish. Yeah. That, you know, giving, giving senior executives, CEOs and the like, this unique as, um, access to information about their company without sharing to anyone else was actually self-defeating. Yeah. So I, I called EIS instead of executive information system. I said, it's wrong. It should be everyone's information system. It yeah. should be shared yeah. and it should be open. And that drives the culture that you want in today's environment. Yeah, great. That, that needs no comment, Kevin. It's absolutely <laughs> right. It's true that in the same way, we talk about other things that bring balance to well-being. You know, some of the divisive language around inclusivity and diversity across the world and where it's not addressed properly at the root cause of an organization's belief system. And one of the items that I often fall out with people when I'm invited to talk about this is, is pay gaps, you know, in large structured organizations where people have all kinds of opinions around the gender split pay gap. I'm not going into that right now at the end of this broadcast, but one of the things that I believe large companies should take out of the interview process is the ability of the hirer and the person looking for the role to negotiate salary. You know, you create friction. It should, and there shouldn't be scales either. There shouldn't be these versions. You know, Eric is a F1 and I'm an F2, right? And Kevin's a, clearly a, an A, right? Uh, so there shouldn't be clearly, all these, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I got it right, didn't I, Kevin? But <laughs> the, the thing is, though, A should be A. If you're an A grade job role, the salary band should be set. We take money off the table. And actually, we focus on the things that matter. I was talking to somebody this week who um, whose company pays off a commission pool. And uh, some people have said, well, I haven't earned commission for ages. This is brilliant, right? They've not adjusted any of the base salaries. This is about retaining people, right? Right. And therefore, the people who are earning it are sharing their commission for those that aren't very good. And actually that would work if you address the lowest salary bands. And it was just a one pay system. So it's fascinating how we system systemically create our own problems in these processes that frankly don't even need to be there in this day and age. Yeah. That's, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think I think pay is is very emotive as well, and um, for for many reasons. I think the bigger the organisation, the, the more they get it wrong. Yeah. Um, 
uh, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, because you hear stories internally, don't you? The gossip. Yeah. You know, yeah. You've got your finger on the pulse and all of a sudden you know that, oh, bonuses were dished out to that lot of people, but not to us. Very exactly. divisive. You know, because there's, there's often no rhyme or reason behind it all. Absolutely. And then you add to that myth, legend and mistake. But, you know, all of this goes right back to the, the framework of the company, the way that they're set up to succeed. Because if you don't have that kind of master framework, particularly in a large organization, um, then what happens is that individual departments and um, business activities develop their own mini frameworks for themselves. So they, 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 you know, they set goals for themselves and so on and so forth. But it could be at complete odds with, a, with, a, with another department next door. Um, so, that, so they're not all you know, walking the same or running the same way. They kind of yeah. do their yeah. own thing, often um, to, to at the dis, at the disadvantage of the of the of, of the whole. Um, so you know you see it all the time, and and you and that's reflected in pay. You know, where some divisions are this, some divisions are that. You know, marketing is this, sales is that, operations is something else, often nothing, um, and uh, and it's inequitable. But it's interesting, Dave, that you bring up compensation because. You know, I've read studies over the years that when you ask employees what's most important to their satisfaction in their job, it's always way down on the list. It's not number one. So it's focusing on those other things on the list, which, you know, these seven principles tend to focus on that are more important than compensation. I agree that it needs to be fair and it needs to be, you know, no prejudice built into it, but it's not the most important thing if you're going to get it right. And I only have one last comment on it, and that is if you've got people that you want to do better, there's a pretty safe um, formula, I think, that captures most of this, and that is get the money right plus uh, self-value of the employee plus their desire to make a difference will work harmoniously. Yep. Mess the money up, the other two are out of the game. Yeah. So, it's quite, it's quite simple. I also want to uh, finish off with a challenge while we've got a minute or so to go. Um, Kevin and uh, Eric, do you know what an energist is? An energist? Is this an a new en word of yours? It is a new word of mine. Yeah, I've got two new words. Next week, I'm going to talk about an ultimist. But today, we're going to do an energist. Yeah, and I added, added it to my computer's dictionary today, officially. Yeah, you know, to me, an energist, it sounds like someone that's just got a lot of energy and shares that energy with others. So I've, I've added it to the screen because Kevin was just about to mind read. It is um, the act of applying energy and commitment to your intentionality of the day you are in. And I like to ask people to become energists with their own focus, with their own actions, with their own frameworks, and to take real action with intention this year, which we've been talking about yeah, throughout January so far. So any last comments from you wonderful, wise gentlemen? So Eric, any last comments you want to make today on consultivation? Um, <clears throat> not really. I think, you know, we covered a lot of ground here and last week that I hope people go to the website and get this uh, blog because I think it's really important, all seven principles for people to be successful. Yeah. 
Good shout. Mr. Turnbull, sir. Uh, yeah, I have, a, I, have a, I have a tip of the day. Um, right. one, of my, one of my favorite interviewing questions is, is this. Um, so, Dave, when you work in a team, what role do you play? And it's a very, it's a deep question because, you know, people want to, want to answer as leader all the time because they want to show leadership qualities. But almost always people are honest about it, particularly when you give them some choices. You know, it could be leader, it could be strategist, it could be the guy that cranks the handle, it could be the scribe, it could be all sorts of things. And so you're asked, you often get an honest answer back and that gives you an insight into whether that person will fit to your team. That's a great tip given all the things you've spoken about today. I'd like to thank you, Eric, for your time. Kevin, you too, my friend. And as we bring this episode towards a close, loads to think about. Two challenges. If you're doing an interview in the next week or the not too distant future, take that question and put it into direct action. So, name, when you work in a team, what role do you play? And then get ready to probe and ask and find out and really pay attention to how they answer you. And, and also believability in their answer. Next up, uh, of course, we'll be back next week with a whole new take on leadership as we go into, I think it's the, the worst credit card of the day is coming up. Credit card bill day on Monday is coming up soon. So the world is going to need us uh, to help them reframe and see the future going into February. And lots that we've gone through today in terms of quality content. The second challenge is join us in our energies challenge which is go and be somebody who is intentional in the day they're in for themselves with commitment and for the people that they lead also. This has been Consultivation. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening to Consultivations, brought to you by RLC Global, helping you become a best version business. If you want any help from the conversations in the show today, please reach out to info at rlc-global.com and one of our team would be delighted to talk with you. Go to rlcglobal.group for more information and free content designed to help you.